dismissed for Children's Church. Uh, the rest of you would open your Bibles to Paul's second letter to Timothy. We will study the text that was the basis for the song that Dave just sang. Thank you, Dave. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Before we dive in, let's, let's have a word of prayer once everyone gets there and commit this time to the Lord. Lord God, if you tarry, each one of us will die. Each one of us will end our lives in the, the work that you've apportioned for us, the ministry you've apportioned for us. Each one of us will give an account before your judgment seat. And Lord, as we read these words of the Apostle Paul, as he faces the end of his life, we are encouraged, we are convicted, and Lord, we pray that you would give us grace, that we too could persevere, that we would be able to say similar words when we come to our journey's end. Lord God, now in this time, please give the increase, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, replace stone hearts with hearts of flesh. Speak light into our darkness. Open our hearts and our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> our text this morning serves as the eulogy, if you will, for the Apostle Paul. This is the final word on his life. The summary of his span of years. He's reached the end. He's facing the end. And the attitude and the statements he's able to make are just fantastic. I, I, I want to be able to say what the Apostle Paul says when I face the end. I think there's much here for us to learn about finishing well. Finishing well. The Apostle Paul did not just start well, but he finished well. He persevered to the end. And so, as we look at this, and you, and you think of the life of this man who was once a persecutor of the church, who was once an enemy of the cross, forcing others to blaspheme, and the Lord broke him, the Lord humbled him, the Lord brought him to himself. And then the Lord used him mightily, and he suffered, and he suffered, and he suffered. And he was shipwrecked, and he was beaten, and he was flogged, and he was jailed, and he was betrayed, and he kept on going. And so this morning, we're to, how, do, how do you do that? How do you finish well? How do you, where do you find the resources to live a life like the Apostle Paul? It can be tempting to think that you know, there's normal Christians, and then there's these sort of super Christians, and we sort of tell ourselves, well, that, that, he's Paul after all, and so that's why he lived the life he lived, and us normal Christians, we could never do that. Well, there's a sense in which God will use some Christians' ministry and service for greater effect in his kingdom, but the Apostle Paul precisely wants us to imitate him. He precisely thinks we can be like him as he imitates Christ, and so I think it's a very realistic and a very... Um, godly and right goal to want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, we've kept the faith. We've finished the race. We've fought the good fight. And so let's dive in and learn how to finish well. Finishing well. And the text, the three verses break down into three points. Um, looking at what we learn about those who persevere. And that, that's the phrase I chose to describe this. You could use other biblical categories, like the, the ones who overcome. That's the way Jesus speaks in the book of Revelation. To those who overcome. That's the language of, of 1 John. The ones who overcome the world. The ones who are not defeated. Their faith does not die, but it perseveres. I chose the term instead of, of those who persevere. And we're going to look first at verse 6, at the confidence of those who persevere. The confidence of those who persevere. Now the Apostle Paul is now making a sharp contrast. In verse five of this section, he says, as for you, and there's an emphatic shift there, 
of, of what he wants Timothy to do. And now we're getting the other half of that contrast. As for you, Timothy, he says, Paul expects there to be much ministry left for him. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy has ministry to fulfill. He has things the Lord wants him to accomplish. By contrast, and the contrast is equally sharp here, but as for me, or for I, in contrast to you, Timothy, who has work and ministry to fulfill, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. And what I get from this, what struck me as I study this and read this, is Paul's confidence. This is not a man who fears death. This is not a man who's trying to eke the last little bit out of life. Trying to get an extra few days. This is a man who wants to go home. And we see that in, in two points. First, he, he relates his, his, his imminent death and his sufferings to the drink offering. He's being poured out, he says, as though he were a drink offering. I mean, poured out as a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. And most of us have never seen a drink offering. We're not very familiar with the drink offering. But this was a metaphor that Paul used to summarize his life regularly. This wasn't just how Paul viewed his life at the end of his life, but this is how Paul regarded his life. Like, Paul, what are you? What's, what's the point of your life? I'm a drink offering. How do I know that? Because years before, in Philippians 2.17, he makes the same illustration. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So back when Paul was first imprisoned... And the prospects of his death came up. Paul said, hey, I am completely willing and content to be a sacrificial offering. And now, in his second imprisonment, as he faces what he thinks likely will be his death, he says that's already happening. And so to get that, we got to get an understanding of what the drink offering was. And at the temple, there was an altar, and all sorts of manner of sacrifices were done. We're most familiar with the lambs. But if you read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there are wave offerings, there are grain offerings, and there are liquid offerings. And if you want to turn there, we're going to go to Numbers 28. It gives one example of the accompanying drink offering to go with the offering of a lamb on the Sabbath. And there were drink offerings at other times as well, but Numbers 28, 9 through 10. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil, and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath, besides the regular burnt offerings and its drink offering. And so what you would do is, as the lamb is being sacrificed, either before or afterwards, you would take a, a bottle or a flask of wine, and you would pour it out over the altar. And it's this pretty vivid picture of, of seeing wine, red, rich, liquid, poured out. And perhaps the Apostle Paul, knowing that because he was a Roman citizen, if he was executed, it would likely be beheading, could image his own life's blood spilling out in a similar way. I think it's also interesting that, that Paul would not dare equate himself and his life with the, the sacrifice of the lamb. And that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. But, but Paul is comfortable saying, I'm sort of like those other sacrifices that appropriately accompany it. They come alongside of it. They don't take the place. They don't atone for sin, but it's fitting on Sabbaths when you sacrifice lambs to also pour out a drink offering. And that's how Paul viewed his life. His Savior came and sacrificially gave himself. And Paul says, I'm quite content being sacrificed, poured out to the Lord. This also means that Paul does not view himself as being executed by Rome, but rather offered up to God, which is a remarkable, remarkable point of view. You know, he could be getting there all focused on the corruption in Rome, and he could be petitioning as senator. And it, Paul does make the defenses he can. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but he does not get consumed with that. He doesn't view the corruption in the system, the inherent injustice of what is being done to him what he is facing. Rather, whatever Rome does, I'm being offered up to God. I'm being offered up to God. My, my life is offered to him. Paul, you're being executed. No, I'm being offered up to God. 
And he's ready. He's ready to go. He's, he's got confidence. And then next he says his departure is near. And now he shifts the metaphor. This is the language used of a, of a ship weighing anchor and setting sail. Or of, of soldiers pulling up the uh, stakes of tents. And so I love that imagery of Paul lifting, getting ready to lift his anchor and set sail. He says, the time is near. It's not quite here yet, but it's close. It's close. Now, we know that he expects he may make it through the winter. We know that because if you jump down in 2 Timothy to verse 21, in one of his final appeals to Timothy, he says, do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. So Paul says it's close, and yet he's still not viewing it as tomorrow. But it's, it's, it's now is the season. Now is the time. My departure is at hand. I'm ready. And here's a man who's confident. Here's a man who's ready to go. Here's a man who elsewhere says, I want to depart and be with the Lord, for it is better. Philippians 1.23. I'm hard-pressed between the two. He asked Paul, Paul, would you rather die and go to heaven or would you rather stay here? In Philippians 1.23, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Here is someone not afraid of death. Here is someone at peace. Here is someone looking towards his reward. And, and the question I want to know is, how do you, how do you get that confidence? How do, you, how do you get to a point in life where even the, the prospects of grossly injustice, false accusation, and murder can be viewed as, I'm just being offered up to God. My ship is getting ready to weigh anchor and set sail. My departure is near. And I think the confidence that we see in the first point is, is fueled by everything we get in the rest of the passage. You see, if, if you've lived a life of, of persevering faith, if you have persevered and grown, you, you face death with a confidence that, that others may not have. Paul talks about some in, in 1 Corinthians 3 who, because they did not build upon the foundation with costly gems or gold, but with hay and straw, will escape, but as though one escaping through fire. And I know, and I've known Christians who, because of their careless living, who, because of the way they've lived their lives, they, they don't have that confidence that the Apostle Paul has. And I know we all want that. We want that confidence. We want to eagerly await the Lord. And so we're going we're to move on now to our second point. See, how do, how do you do that? How do, you, how do you get an attitude that Paul has? Review death as gain. And understand that, that Paul viewed that. He says, I, I counted this law. So he looks at this life, and he looks at the joys of fellowship in the church, and he looks at the joys of discipleship and evangelism, the joys of creation and nature. He looks at all of that, and he looks at Christ and being with Christ, and he says, loss, gain. And we sing songs that say those things, but if we're honest... Our hearts sometimes disagree. I remember when I was a new Christian, and I became a new, brand new believer. I was excited, Lord, you can take me home whenever you want. And then as the years progress, it starts to be like, well, could just, can I get a little heads up, Lord? You know, I haven't been to Disneyland yet. Can you just hold off a little bit? Just, you know, you know sometime before I get really, really old, um, just some, you know, just, and, and you start shifting. And I don't know if you share my experience, but, that's been my experience. My heart starts to shift and what was initially just, oh Lord, come, oh Lord, come, oh Lord, take me, come, becomes, yeah, one of those days, that's gonna be really nice. You know, in a while, in a while. And so let's, let's move on now to our second point, the trials of those who persevere. Because the reason why Paul can have this attitude, peace, viewing himself as a sacrificial offering is because his faith has survived the test. He has persevered through the trials of those who persevere, which is our second point, the trials of those who persevere. And Paul uses three metaphors now. And we've talked before about different verb tenses in Greek, and I'm just going to say that the, the point here is emphatic of, of completion. These are all perfect verb tenses. These are completed actions with the present consequences emphasized. Uh, I, I had a professor who would translate, have us translate this, I... I am in the state of having fought the good fight. I am in the state of having completed and run the race. 
and finished the race. And I'm in the state of that and kept the faith. Paul is saying, this is what currently describes me. I'm currently in the state of having come through. And so we're going to look at these one at a time. Because, of course, trials are what make perseverance difficult. If it weren't for trials, it would be easy. I think I said last week, Oscar Wilde said, you know, I can resist everything but temptation. And here we see the, the trials. And, and it can be hard. And what's, what's even more interesting is those who fail at trials don't even know how hard trials are. I mean, stop and think about that. Those who give up, who, whose faith crumbles under trials, don't really know how difficult the trial is. As C.S. Lewis said, it's only the army that fights the Germans that knows how tough the Germans are. And so Paul went through some trials. You read through Acts, you read through his epistles, he, he's gone through it. It's no joking matter. And so we look at the first example. It says, I have fought the fight, which can give the wrong impression. You may think, oh, we're talking about a military metaphor. We're not. There's really no good English translation. I have contested the good contest. Um, it's, it's a sports term. It's a sports analogy. And it's similar to what he said a little bit earlier in the book in um, in actually 1 Timothy 6, 12, in the previous book, where he tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. It's the same, same word used in 1 Corinthians 9. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul does the most extended sports metaphor in his writing. And 1 Corinthians 9. We'll start in verse 24, where he will bring together two of our illustrations here into one passage. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And that phrase there, exercises self-control, he competes. In all things, they do not receive a perish. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And and that's the the metaphor that's being employed here, that of an athletic contest. And Paul doesn't say he's won. There's no boasting here. He doesn't say I won the race. I won the athletic competition. He just says he's competed well. The the blank there next to fight the fight is compete. And we've got various expressions to say it. When an athlete has has given their all in a game, their team may lose. But we talk about how they gave it their all out there. They really brought their best game. You can be the MVP and, and, and be on the losing team. And all the Apostle Paul is claiming, and his confidence rests not in the fact that he won every competition, but that he was in it to win it, that he was all in, that he, he did not hold himself back. He, he played, he competed with zeal. And, and this can be convicting because we throw ourselves with zeal into all sorts of things. I know, I'm sure there are many people in this room who have been very zealous at, at advancing at work. Not a bad thing. Very zealous in getting good grades in education. You know, no, no B's or C's, great zeal. And that's a good thing too. And we can be zealous at so many things. And, and so now take those things that we're familiar with, or just take ath- athletics. How much practice, how much work, how much um, training, how much endurance goes into excellence in athletics or music or any of these things that we understand where that require perseverance and energy and work and then put that up against your my work at persevering in the faith you're in my work at being faithful to god's word and being faithful to the lord and it starts getting convicting people will have no problem throwing dozens of hours a week at the right time of the year to sport into all sorts of, of other things that are not bad enough themselves. And, and we have this same of us feel we've done a good job if we've spent 15 minutes in prayer and 10 minutes in the Word. It's convicting. 
But the confidence to face death like Paul faces death is built upon the perseverance that competes heartily in the good fight. And Paul's not saying he's done a good job fighting. It's, it's the noble or good competition, which again is the notion of better best. You know, there's all sorts of good things you can pour your life into. There's all sorts of good things you can compete in. This is the best thing. This is the noble thing. This is the valuable thing. And to use the analogy that we've used before of the, you know, you, you, get, you win the competition and you run into the... Uh, the room with all the money on the table. You know, I don't know if they do that anymore, but you know when they used to have those uh, one millionth customer and they come in and they get the money room. And I've told this analogy before, but I, I think it's worth retelling. And you imagine the foolishness of someone. They've got 60 seconds to put as much money in a duffel bag as they can. And there's three tables, one that's piled high with ones, one that's piled high with fives, and one that's piled high with 20s. And they run over to the ones table and they start shoving ones in the bag and all of their friends were gathered around and say, what are you doing? And they turn around and say, what's wrong with the ones? And the answer, of course, is nothing, stupid. <laughs> and, and we're asking the wrong question if the thing you're pouring your life into, you say, well, what's wrong with advancing in my career? What's wrong with being an excellent athlete? What's wrong with being you know, um, the number one high score on Halo. Well, there might be an answer to that one. Um, but, and the answer is nothing inherently, but if you're neglecting the real game, the real sports, the real competition, if you're benching yourself from the only thing that really matters, then something is wrong. And so we need to compete in the fight of faith. We need to compete in the, in the real game that's in town. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have, I have literally agonized. Our English word um, comes from the Greek word to exercise and exert oneself. Secondly, Paul says he's finished the race. He's finished the race. And here the blank is Endure. The first metaphor is on competition, is on throwing yourself into it, giving it your all. Here, it's making it to the end. It's making it to the end. And what's really encouraging, to turn to Acts 20. What's really exciting is, again, these aren't Paul's end-of-his-life goals. These are goals he's had all of his life. And again, another insight we get into this is if you don't start making this your goal now, if, if this doesn't get on your radar now, by the time you come to the end of your life, it may be too late to leave this type of legacy. But the Apostle Paul in, in Acts 20 is on his way to Jerusalem for his first imprisonment. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and then prophets, speaking by the Holy Spirit, have told him in no uncertain terms, when you go to Jerusalem, you will be bound, you will be chained, you will be sent to Rome. And on his way there, he sends for a final meeting with the elders at Ephesus. Pick it up in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials, and what happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public, and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks, repentance towards God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Did you catch that? Years earlier, years earlier, the Apostle Paul had his eye on the prize. 
You wonder, how, how does Paul do this? Is it because he's some super Christian? No, it's because from earlier in his life, he said, I want to finish the course. How did the apostle Paul finish his course? He set it as his goal many, many years earlier. He says, the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to suffer. That's okay. I want to complete my ministry. But by the way, does that sound familiar? He just told Timothy, complete your ministry. I want to finish the race course. I want to make it to the end. And the Apostle Paul, speaking in Acts 20, the Ephesian elders, had that as his goal. And how encouraging. Here he is at the end of his life, achieving it. Achieving it. I've done it. Timothy, there's still ministry for you to fulfill. I have finished the course. You, you can go back to, to 2 Timothy. Finished the race. And it's not just Paul who has a race, but in Hebrews 12, all of us receive this exhortation. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Do you know that each and every one of us is running a race? You are. You might be running the wrong way, but you're running. You're running a race. Each and every one of us. Not just the great leaders, not just the Apostle Pauls, not just pastors and elders, but each and every one of us is running a race. The question that only remains is, are we running well? Will we make it to the finish line? Will we persevere or not? The writer of Hebrews encourages us to get rid of sin and encumbrances, which again goes back to the notion that some things are strictly unlawful. They're bad. Get, get rid of them. Other things are unhelpful. I've never been much of a foot racer myself, um, but I'm... From the little bit I know of the subject, snowshoes are not illegal in foot races, but they're just not very helpful. Fair enough. Um, you know, water wings are not illegal in foot races. They're just not very helpful. Ski goggles, you know, not illegal. I don't know of any rules that prohibit them. Just not very helpful. And we can fill up our lives with so many snowshoes and water wings and goggles that we aren't in it to win it in the real competition, and we're not really running very well. And so again, if we want to face death, and all of us will face death, unless, unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, all of us will, will face death. And, and if we don't make it our goal now to fight hard and to run well, we may not have this confidence that the Apostle Paul has, and I want this. I want to complete my course. I want to finish my race. I want to endure to the end. And so I, I think we need to take up this task and this challenge of making this our goal, following Paul's model. He didn't, you don't accidentally do this stuff. You don't just sort of accidentally become righteous. I've never met anyone whose testimony, how did, how did you mature? And how did you persevere? And how did you survive? Well, you know, I, I just didn't really worry about it. It just kind of went with the flow. And, pff, you know, I don't know what happened. I just got mature. I've never met anyone whose testimony is that way. By the way, if you go with the flow, you always go downstream away from the source. Always, right? If you just go with the current, you're always going the wrong way. No, when I talk to people, it's always through trials. It's always through suffering. It's always through persecutions and difficulties that the Lord refines his people. They endure. So we've got to fight the fight. We've got to compete. We've got to finish the race. We've got to endure. And finally, he says, I have kept the faith. Now, it's possible that Paul here refers to his own personal faithfulness. I don't think so, because just a little earlier... Um, in this letter, and previously in 1 Timothy 6.20, he, he makes similar statements. Go, go back to um, 2 Timothy 1. What does it mean that he has kept the faith? Verses 12 through 14. For which I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's the picture of guarding. In fact, this really is the only potentially military metaphor going on. It's a picture, it's a word used of soldiers guarding a fort. Or to use another sports metaphor, it's the picture I have of, of the football player with the, with the ball under his arm running down the field. He's guarding it. He's protecting it. He's holding on to it. Trying to make some advancement. Trying to make some progress. Trying to gain some yards. So the word here is Defend. Paul has fought the fight, he's competed vigorously, he has finished the race, he has endured, he's kept the faith, he has defended truth. And in this letter as he passes the baton, he says, oh Timothy, you need, to, you need to defend the truth, you need to guard the truth, you need to pass on the truth. Which of course is the task that the church has received, that all of us have received. You know, the church will not hold on to truth it does not defend. It simply won't. It will not hold on to truth it does not defend. If we're not willing to defend truth, we will lose truth. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. And, and talk about finishing your course and, and holding on to truth and defending it. Look down a little further in verses 16 to 18 of chapter 4. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Even, and this is what's amazing, the Lord will use our suffering. The Lord used Paul's suffering. Paul was abandoned and left alone in his first formal trial defense. And yet Paul says the Lord used that suffering, that abandonment, so that the message might be fully proclaimed. And all the Gentiles might hear. You understand that God will, God will use your and my persevering through trials, your and my defense of the faith and endurance. He will use it for good. He does not waste the suffering of his people. And so you read that, you're like, man, what a blow. That the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, at his final trial, is not surrounded by a company of friends. He's not surrounded by all the people whose lives he poured himself into. He's, he's abandoned. He's left alone. Why would the Lord do that? Why would the Lord let that happen? Oh, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed. And all the Gentiles might hear it. I mean, he's not faltering at the end. Paul is still preaching the same gospel that he preached after he was converted. And at the very last step, he's still faithful, still declaring Christ crucified and resurrected. And he's willing to, to see in his suffering. God's good purpose. I mean, this is amazing. This, this isn't far distant. Sometimes when we suffer, we can get a perspective that distance helps us with. And I'm sure you've experienced that. Something that in the moment was really difficult, and you didn't like it. You grumbled, and you complained, and years later, you see the goodness of God in it. Here's Paul. The wound is still fresh. He was completely forsaken and abandoned. He's in Rome, and he knows there's some Christians in Rome who could come to his defense, who could, who could come and stand with him, and they don't. And yet, even with that wound still fresh, he is able to look with eyes of faith and see the good purposes of God in that. I can see how the Lord strengthened me and used that to fully proclaim the gospel message to the Gentiles. It's amazing. He defended the faith. Those are Paul's three claims. I have fought the good fight. I've competed. I've given myself all to the noblest endeavor. I've finished the race. And I've kept the faith. It's amazing testimony. This is, this is why you can face death with confidence. But as we turn now to our third point, let's look at the reward. I think we've already seen some of the rewards, simply the confidence, but there's more. There's more. And I want you and I want me to, to see this, because if we don't make it our goal, like Paul did, if we don't decide today, I want to finish well, and I'm going to take steps 
and I'm going I'm to fix as my goal finishing the course, fighting the fight, keeping the faith. And I'm going I'm to clear out space in my life and maybe get rid of some things that are slowing me down, get rid of some snowshoes. Then, then it's not going to happen. So I want to make the reward as big and as bright as possible. There's more. The Apostle Paul in verse 8 says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who loved his appearing. And so first we got the, the victor's crown, the crown of righteousness. It's, it's the... It's, just continuing the running metaphor of a garland, um, a, a winner's reef. He, he mentions it back in chapter 2, verse 5, when he used a similar metaphor. If you remember, flip back to 2 Timothy 2. And he gives Timothy similar metaphors about persevering. Let's just pick it up in chapter 2, verse 3. Share in suffering with me. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And here it is. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And so when Paul here is talking about this crown, he's just borrowing that imagery that he used two chapters earlier. Because he has finished the race, because he has been a faithful athlete, there awaits for him a victor's crown, or garland, if you will. And you could translate this a couple of ways. I, I think probably the best understanding of what is this crown, it's the crown which is righteousness. I, I, I think it's probably the best way of understanding it. What is the crown? The crown is righteousness. And, and that can theologically get tricky because you go, well, isn't Paul already righteous? Well, he is, legally. I mean, let's just, let's just try this out for you and for me. If you're a believer sitting here today, J Jeremy Kidder, is Jeremy Kidder righteous? Well, if Jeremy Kidder is trusting by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and nothing but, then in the sense of God's law and in relationship to the living God, Jeremy Kidder is righteous. But just ask my wife if Jeremy Kidder is righteous. In function, in day-to-day -day life, it's a mixed bag at best. And so there's a sense in which you can say, no, Jeremy Kidder is not righteous. And you'd be speaking the truth in, in practice, in function, in economy, no, legally, judicially. And in relationship between God, yes, I am. I am reconciled with my God who made me. And in his eyes, I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And on that basis, he accepts me and I can draw near. But there's going to come a day, beloved, when... When we go to be with the Lord, we'll be transformed, we'll be changed. And from then on, we will not only be legally righteous, but we will be functionally righteous, where we will sin no more, where wicked desires and the parts of me that craves evil things will be fully crucified with Christ and dead. And Paul says that's the crown. That's what I believe Paul is saying is the crown. The crown is that full transference of functional righteousness where he is no longer struggling with his old man, no longer having to crucify himself, but fully conformed to the image of Christ. And then we get this amazing thing. So Paul, so Paul and here's, here's where we get sort of roped into all this. Up until this point, Paul's been giving autobiography, right? He says, my life's drawing to a close. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I've fought the fight. I've run the race. I have kept the faith. There's a crown waiting for me. And then we get roped in. Catch that at the end there. And not just for me only, but also for all who have loved his appearing. And so now I've got to deal with that. And again, this comes back to why I'm confident the Apostle Paul wants us to be like him. This isn't just some super prize for apostles and, and, and super Christians. Because now Paul brings us all in, and that, and that gets a little complicated. Because I've just said that this, this prize, this garland, goes to those who persevere, those who overcome, those who compete and endure and defend. And Paul says, oh yes, I've done that. There's a crown waiting for me, and not just me, but for everyone who loves Jesus appearing. And so my first point is this, in trying to work our way through this, is the solution is there are not two types of Christians. 
There are not two types of Christians. Those who get crowns of righteousness and those who don't. Why do I say that? Because there are not two types of Christians, those who love the Lord and those who don't. And Paul is saying, track what he's doing here. I've fought the fight. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. A crown, a victor's crown is awaiting me because of those things. So who gets the crown of righteousness? Those who, you know, fight the fight and those who run the race and those who defend the faith. And everyone who loves Jesus appearing. And so, in order for that to square, you have to conclude everyone who loves Jesus appearing will, in fact, fight the fight, keep the faith, and finish the race. Which is exactly what we saw earlier in chapter 2. In that, that difficult passage we looked at about the necessity of persevering. Remember we said anyone who has real faith, anyone who truly is born again, the Lord won't ultimately let them fall away. He will bring them back. He will use rods if he has to, but he disciplines all of his sons and he, he bruises those whom he loves and draws near his sons. And so there aren't two types of Christians. Some of us are going to get crowns of righteousness. Some of us aren't. Flip over a few pages to James. James makes a very, very similar point. In fact, I think the junior hires will be looking at this very soon. So try not to steal Mark's thunder. Um, but in James 1.12, James talking about persevering trials. Look at this. Blessed is the man, or happy is the man, who remains steadfast under trial. Why? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So the parallel I'm drawing here is this. Here is a crown promised for achievement, for, for persevering, for making it to the end. Why should I be happy when I've, when I've stood the test? Because I'll receive the crown of life. And then he gets this universal caveat at the end, which God has promised to those who love him. Well, who gets the crown here? Those who love him or those who persevere? Yes. They have to be one in the same group. And if you say, well, what about those who love the Lord but don't persevere? They don't exist. Go, go to John 14 with me. Well, well, this is a little detour, but I think it's worth taking. John 14, 15. Very short, very simple verse. This is Jesus speaking. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Pretty clear, right? But I want you to work that backwards. Because that, what that verse means, and what it says, is... Whatever is the state of your affections, whatever you think is going on in your heart, however emotional you get when you sing songs, when you listen to a sermon, however teary-eyed you become, however many warm and fuzzies you have about Jesus, if you're not obeying him, you don't love him. You get that. Because if you loved him, you'd keep his commandments. So there aren't Christians who love Jesus, but just for whatever reason, they don't obey to the degree that you don't obey him, you don't love him. To the degree that you love him, you will obey him. That's what that says. There's no other way around it. The grammar's pretty simple. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so love of Christ, this is the second point here, is the basis of perseverance. It's the fuel of perseverance. It's the reason why Paul persevered. It's why he can say, I have run the race. I have fought the fight. I have defended the faith. The Lord's going to give me the crown and not just me, but all those who love the Lord's appearing. As Paul understands, all those who love the Lord's appearing will keep his commandments. They will follow him. They're one in the same group. There aren't two types of Christians. Rather, there are those who love the Lord and follow the Lord and are shepherded and persevere by the Lord. Love of Christ is the basis of perseverance. While you're in John, go to John 3. 
You know, this, this is another thing that oftentimes we can be confused on. What is it that stops people from coming to Christ? Why don't people believe the gospel message? Why don't people come more to Christ? What is the biggest hindrance in evangelism? And we can be tempted to think that the biggest hindrance in our evangelism is the incredulity of the claims of the gospel, is the unbelievableness of it, if you will. I mean, after all, we got a pretty tall tale that God became a, a zygote and was born. And in one small country, a, a Jewish, far, a Jewish um, carpenter was God. And he came to his own and they rejected him and he was killed. And this man who was killed on a cross is really the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And he, and he bore our sins on the cross. And he didn't stay dead. He was raised again on the third day. And if you will believe, if you will turn to him in faith and repentance, if you will receive him for who he is, if you will look to him with eyes of faith, if you will entrust yourself to him and trust him with yourself, you will be saved. And we can be tempted to think, that is kind of a tall tale. That's not the reason people reject the gospel fundamentally. John 3, verse 19 this is the conclusion of the Nicodemus encounter. It's either Jesus speaking, or I think more likely John, the gospel writer, is now returning as the narrator, giving us the conclusion of the Nicodemus encounter. This is the judgment. This is the conclusion. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Why don't people come to the light? They hate the light. Why do they hate the light? They love the darkness. So, so flip that analogy through. Jesus has come into the world as light. That's John's metaphor. Why aren't men coming to Christ? Because they love sin. They love the darkness. What stops people from coming to Christ? Love of sin. Love of my own way. It's not the incredulity of the claims. I like my freedom. I like doing what I please. I like following my own desires. I like gratifying my instincts. I like being the authentic me. Yeah, when people say you got to be the real you, no, 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 the real me. You don't want to meet the, you know. Again, talk to my wife about the real. They don't come to the light because they love the, love the darkness. That's what stops people from coming to Christ, which is why the love of Christ is the basis of perseverance. It's the basis of perseverance. Go, go, to, um, go to John 14 again. We'll just, one more passage in John we'll look at. Verses 21 to 24. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. See the connection between following Christ and loving Christ? And it's, it's a lie if we try to separate those two. We're, oh, no, no, I really love Jesus. I just am in a season of not obeying him right now. Then you're in a season of not really loving Jesus right now. And maybe that'll change. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. The reason why Paul can say, the Lord is going to award me a crown because I fought the fight, because I ran the race, because I defended the faith. And he's not just giving it to me, but he's giving it to all who love his appearing. The reason why he can say that is he understands that if you love Jesus, you too will be fighting the fight. You too will be running the race. You too will be defending the faith. You know, the ending of 1 Corinthians 16, 22, making it absolutely clear, says this. It's 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Anathema. See, so there are no Christians who don't love the Lord. No, those who don't love the Lord are under a curse. Then it ends with Maranatha, our Lord, Come. So there are those who love the Lord and his appearing, and there are unbelievers. And, and, and in closing out with the final point then, what this means is for you and I, if we're like, okay, 
Back to our original question. How do I do this? How do I live a life like Paul lived his life? How do I make it to the end of the course? How do I finish my race? How do I fight the fight? How do I get in it to win it? Final point, you've got to be growing in the love of Christ. I'd say it's two things. You've got, you got to make it your goal. I mean, some of us just need to like, oh yeah, there's a race. I need to run. We're like the, the hare that fell asleep and the tortoise is going to beat us. But don't think it's going to be your gritting of your teeth and your determination and your stiff upper lip and your, you know, Americans. America developed this sort of American Adam of the sort of the self-made individual, rugged, that sort of picture. Don't think that's what's going to get you to the end of the race. It's love of Christ. Which is why, and I'll close by reading one of my favorite passages of the Bible. This is Paul's great prayer for the church in Ephesians 3. And as I read it, I'd like to call the worship team up for our final song. But I want you to listen. When Paul prays, and there's nothing wrong with praying about travel mercies, and there's nothing wrong with praying for your sick dog or whatever. But we should pay attention to the things Paul prays for and make sure that's on our list as well. And I want you to listen to this prayer in Ephesians because Paul understood the connection. If these people are going to grow, if, these, if this church is going to persevere, they need to know the love of Christ more. So I'm going to read this, and then we're going to sing, All I Have is Christ. Paul Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So here's, all of that is just one big preamble. So what is it that Paul wants? It's, it's, it's to our inner man. It's by his spirit. It's according to his riches. But what? What is it, Paul, that the body, that you all may have strength to comprehend along with all the saints? What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? You get all that? It's not just some throwaway line. He's built this up. He's, this is exactly how I want it to happen. They've got to get a bigger understanding of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. That needs to become our prayer. Needs to become our desire. Your greatest need, we talked about this last week, felt needs. My greatest need is I need to love and know Christ more. You need to love and know Christ more. So let's stand and sing what is divinely true, and yet we are tempted to so seldom believe that all we have, all I have, of any worth, of any value, of any consequence, is Christ.